We're so glad that you've joined us tonight, and as we go through this Good Friday service, we're going to just continue our series, A Journey with Jesus to the Cross. So, if you want to follow along, we're going to loosely follow, starting in Mark chapter 14, as we just look at the, the account of Mark and how he looks at the crucifixion events. And after Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover feast, they left the place where they were at and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And they went to a familiar grove called Gethsemane, which was on the lower slopes of that mountain. And Jesus had come to pray with his father that night. And he brings Peter, James, and John further into the olive grove with him. Here Jesus begins to feel the full weight of the events that are about to unfold Jesus tells these three disciples in Mark 14, 34, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And it's at this point that he leaves them and he goes a little further into the grove. And it's now that Jesus falls on the ground and he prays to the Father that he wouldn't have to go through this. Please, let there be some other way. Abba, Father, you can do anything. It's not impossible. It's not impossible to think that there is some other way. And while Jesus is here in the garden, he still has a choice. He knows what the plan is, that he's to be the permanent sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Yet, he could choose not to go through with it. The choice is his. And I would say that his humanity is freaking out at this point knowing what is about to come. So he's wrestling with that choice. And in that moment in Gethsemane, he chose to yield to the Father's plan. Verse 36 says, Not what I will, but what you will. And by saying those eight words... He chose to be that permanent sacrifice for all the sins of man. He chose to die for you, and He chose to die for me. And by making that choice to yield to the Father's plan, we see at this point a significant shift in the life of Jesus. Throughout this journey with Jesus that we've been taking in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus as a man of action. He's healed the sick. He's cast out the demons. He's taught the multitudes. He's calmed the storms. He's raised the dead. He's commissioned his disciples. He's fed the 5,000. And the list goes on and on. But by him yielding at this point, we now see that for the next roughly chapter and a half, Jesus no longer is the one who's going to be performing the actions. Instead, he becomes the object of the actions. He's now going to be the one who takes all of the actions upon him. And we see now that choices are going to be made concerning Jesus. The story continues, and Judas and the armed guards find Jesus in Gethsemane. Judas kisses him, and the guards arrest Jesus, and they bring him to the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin. And if you look at Mark 14.55, It says this, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus 
so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. It is here that we see the motive and the intent of this group. The religious leaders chose to destroy Jesus. They were looking for any possible evidence, any bit of testimony against Jesus, so that they could put him to death. Many false testimonies are given, but none of these statements are agreeing. None of them are jiving and meshing together. So finally, the high priest questions Jesus. He asks, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus replies, I am. And you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of God. This causes that entire assembly to go into a frenzied rage because he is coming against everything that they have ever believed in. They couldn't believe that he would claim to be the Son of God. He isn't who the Son of God was supposed to be. He doesn't act like what they thought he should act like. It just isn't possible. And because of this, they condemn him to death. They decide that he needs to be destroyed. And it's at this point that we see in Mark 14.65, he becomes the object of their actions. They begin to spit on him. They blindfold him. They strike him with their fists. And even the guards get in on the action when they take him and they begin to beat him. And if we move along in the story, in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, we read that very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. And verse 3 continues on, The chief priests accused him of many things. The religious leaders were determined to, de- to destroy Jesus in any way that they could. They had had enough of his message. They had to end his message and his influence because it threatened their entire system of religious beliefs. Jesus was not their ideal picture of who the Messiah was supposed to be or what he was supposed to do. So they needed to exterminate him at any cost. And when I think of how the religious leaders chose to destroy Jesus because of his message and his influence, I have to stop and wonder, how often have I destroyed Jesus in my own life? How often have I been like these religious leaders, saying, I'm comfortable with my religious beliefs and traditions. Why are you asking me to do this? Unfortunately, I have to say, there's been many times in my life where I've been comfortable with my walk with Christ. I've been fine with the status quo. I feel good about my faith because I go to church on Sunday and on Wednesdays. From time to time, I've helped out with music or youth or with a special event. Surely I must be doing something good. But then I hear God speak to me about something. could be anything, like fasting or loving other people like myself or honoring my parents. And I think, really? I've done this and this for you, God. And now you're going to go there? Come on, Jesus. Don't go there. That's not an area for you to touch. Are you really going to try to disrupt my notion of following you? 
And unfortunately, there's been many times where I've pushed back against what he's speaking to me. And it's in those choices that I've made that as I reflect on, I see that I've begun to destroy the influence of Jesus in my life. The message that he's trying to work in and through me. Because I don't want him to go there. I've rejected his message because it feels like he's acting, asking too much or it's disrupting my comfortable way of life. So if we continue on with the story, after handing Jesus over to Pilate, the religious leaders begin to work the crowd that was gathered there. They know that they still need to convince Pilate that Jesus should be put to death. And it was customary at that time for a prisoner to be to be released at the feast upon the request of the people. So to make sure that there was no chance for Jesus to be released, they begin to infiltrate the crowd and begin to stir them up. They convince the crowd to request a revolutionary named Barabbas, one who had committed murder, to be released instead of Jesus. And Pilate is initially shocked at this request. But when he asks what he should do with Jesus... The crowd simply responds, shouting out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And they keep shouting it over and over. And Pilate finally gives in and hands Jesus over to be crucified. And now when Pilate turns Jesus over to the custody of the Roman guards, this is a group of soldiers who take pleasure in torturing their victims. We've seen how the religious leaders chose to destroy Jesus and how their efforts are beginning to work. And now as the Roman guards take custody of Jesus, we'll see that the soldiers chose to mock and humiliate Jesus. The first thing the soldiers do is they flog Jesus. And I find this to be an interesting ordeal to go through. The historian Josephus notes that the person who was to be flogged was usually stripped down of his clothes. The victim would then be stretched with his hands high above his head and tied to the top of a pole. Then the victim would be whipped with a device of three leather straps, generally laced with some type of bone that was sharpened. Thirteen stripes would be placed against the victim's chest. And 26 would go against the back. By the end of the flogging, the flesh of the victim would literally be hanging in shreds off of his body. So imagine with me the torn up body of Jesus at the end of his flogging. Chunks of flesh have been ripped from his body. He's bloody, he's weak, he's in excruciating pain. Unfortunately for him, it doesn't end there. After the soldiers flog him, they figure they would have a little fun at Jesus' expense. Mark fifteen seventeen through 20 describe what they do next. They put a purple robe on him. They let it rest on his open back and chest. Then they twist together a crown of thorns and put the thorny crown on his head. They taunt and they mock him, calling out, Hail, King of the Jews! 
Hail to you! And one by one, they strike him on the head with the staff. This head that has a crown of thorns on it. And they spit on him. After they had mocked him for a while, they removed the purple robe from his body. This robe had most likely begun to cling to his body because of his bleeding and his flogged and torn up body. And now after all of this, they lead him out and they crucify him. And here again, when we look at the actions of these soldiers, I wonder if we also mock and humiliate Jesus by the way we live our lives. We prop him up and say that he's our Lord, our Savior, and our King. But in our hearts, do we truly love him? Do we really want to follow him in all of his teachings? We may come and praise him on Sunday. We may sing the song that we just sang, Jesus, you are my King. We may sing and lift our hands when we come to church. But do we strike him on the head when we spend the rest of the week cursing at our coworkers, our classmates, maybe even our family members? Do we spit on him when we gossip about our friends and family? Are we ripping off the purple robe that started to cling to his body when we withhold a simple act of kindness from someone in need? So finally, after all of this beating and mocking, and after all of this hanging on the cross for several hours, Jesus lets out a final and loud cry. And then he takes his last breath. And as we've looked at the story of Jesus' death, we've seen that the religious leaders chose to destroy Jesus. We've also seen how the soldiers and the onlookers chose to mock and humiliate Jesus. But now, as we look at the very end of this story, we see that Joseph of Arimathea chose to preserve Jesus. Let's look at verse 43 of chapter 15. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to, Jesus, to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So at the end of this long day, and seeing that Jesus was dead, Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Unlike the soldiers who paid false homage, he was going to give him true homage to his Lord Jesus and give him a proper burial. And if you notice in verse 33, we see that Joseph was a member of the council, another word for the Sanhedrin. Now why would a member of the Sanhedrin, the group that had earlier that day done everything possible to destroy Jesus, now ask for the body 
so that he could bury it. I think the other Gospels provide some additional details concerning Joseph that are going to help us get a clear answer to that question. Matthew 27.57 states that Joseph had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And in Luke 23.51, we find that Joseph had not consented to the decision and action of the Sanhedrin, probably because he wasn't present at the meeting early in that morning. Yet, because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was taking a risk by asking for Jesus' body. Normally, the body of an executed criminal was just left unburied, or was just dumped into a, a pauper's field. He wasn't going to get any type of formal burial. So his request was sure to raise eyebrows among his colleagues and those around him, and would quite possibly close this chapter on his way of life as a member of the Sanhedrin. But in spite of all that, he did not want to see his Lord end up the way of the common criminal. He didn't want his body to be tossed like trash on a pile. He chose to preserve Jesus. He chose to honor and pay respect to the man who had now given his life for Joseph. He chose to identify himself with Jesus at this moment. And even though it was risky, he, at that moment, identified himself as a follower of Jesus. He said, I am going to give honor to my Lord and Savior. And he chose to preserve Jesus in his life from that moment forward. So we began tonight by seeing that Jesus made a choice in Gethsemane. He chose to submit to the Father's plan. He had already left the splendor and glory of the Father. He came to earth to walk among us. And above all that, He chose to die for you and for me. He chose to undergo the beating, the mocking, the flogging, the crucifixion for you. He became the object of all those actions for you and for me. So Jesus chose to die for you and for me. The question tonight is this. What will you choose to do with Jesus? Will you be like the religious leaders and choose to destroy Jesus' influence in your life? What He stands for? What He's still trying to accomplish in you? Or will you be like the soldiers who chose to mock Jesus and pay false homage to Him? Will you choose to just give Him lip service, but keep your heart far from Him? Or will you be like Joseph, and to choose to preserve Jesus and identify with Him from this moment forward?